Welcome to the Gateworld Podcast. Welcome to this week's installment of the Gateworld Podcast. You're listening to episode number 25. And today David and I are talking about Enemy at the Gate. We also have a preview of our upcoming interview with Stargate Atlantis director Andy Makita. And we have lots of Stargate news, site features, and listener mail as always. This show is powered by the hopes and dreams of little Stargate fans everywhere. Harvested and processed into a thin, viscous fluid. What the hell? <laughs> the Gate World Podcast starts right now. My name is Darren Sumner, and joining me once again is my own enemy at the gate, David Reed. 25. That's a great milestone. Yep, 25 feels good. I think 100 will feel better. That means that 20 episodes have been dedicated to Atlantis and only five episodes dedicated to other topics. I find that hard to believe. I thought we've talked about more than five other main topics. No, there's five. We made it all the way to the end of the season and the end of the show, obviously. It's kind of, new year. kind of bittersweet. The show, after five years, the show's been a big part of my life. Big part of what's going on in GateWorld, obviously. Stargate News. Here are your headlines from GateWorld for January 13th, 2009. We have some updates on Stargate Universe this week. There are some new titles and some new character descriptions that have been released. First, we have episode number 105. Looks like it's going to be called Water, written by Carl Binder. This is in keeping with the theme that we talked about a few weeks ago. The premiere is called Air. And episode 6 is currently titled Earth. There's also a hint that episode four might be fire, so the season might actually start with air parts one through three, and then fire, and then water, and then earth. There's a little bit of a motif going on like we thought there was going to be. It's going to be an interesting transition from elemental titles to normal titles. Yeah, I probably can't keep this up for a hundred episodes. We might actually have a two-parter called Paper and Plastic. (laughs) We also have some new info this week on some characters... Hopefully this is minimal spoilers for people who are tuning in for the pilot. Um, there's a, a senator who we already knew was going to be in the episode uh, in the premiere. Senator Walker is uh, one of our regulars, Chloe. It's her father. Uh, and Chloe was formerly Chloe Carpenter. Now she's going to be Chloe Walker. So he's a distinguished senator who has oversight over the Stargate program and um, this secret project that we won't go into too much detail about, but you can read a little bit more on the website. He's Chloe's father, and then the other character is uh, named Camille Ray. She's a woman somewhere between 30 and 50, and an accountant who works with the IOA, who's also involved in uh, oversight of this secret project. And again, there's a little bit more detail, not a whole lot, at GateWorld right now. Fans are going to have the opportunity to pick the first episodes that arrive on Blu-ray. Maybe the only episodes that arrive on Blu-ray. If you visit StargateHub.com, you'll be invited to participate in a poll for uh, your favorite episodes from Stargate Atlantis. And then this is going to come out on an Atlantis DVD. No, excuse me. This is going to come out on Blu-ray disc for Atlantis. Uh, A lot of fans are obviously concerned the entire show might not come out on Mm -hmm. Blu-ray. They want to buy the entire series on Blu-ray. I would like to caution fans that Blu-ray is extremely expensive to produce, and Sony is the only producer of Blu-ray right now, so they are very choosy as to what is going to get into that queue because they're the only people who put out Blu-ray. I didn't realize Um, that. 
everyone is not putting out Blu-rays. Sony owns the rights to the Blu-ray manufacturing, and they're the ones who get to decide which projects they decide to work with. Not everything can be put on Blu-ray all at once because not everyone is doing it. MGM might also be a little bit uh, cautious in terms of putting out an entire season. I would imagine that that's a pretty big investment. And it's a new format, and yeah, Blu-ray won the format war, but it's you kind of want to see how it does, and if this TV on DVD phenomenon, I think, really carries over into the high-def world. So it doesn't surprise me if, if maybe they're doing a, a best-of Atlantis fan picks compilation release as maybe sort of a trial balloon as well. Well, also coming to Blu-ray uh, today, actually, if we manage to get this podcast out on Tuesday... So now on store shelves, I should say, is uh, the Blu-ray release for Stargate The Ark of Truth. This one came out uh, back in March on DVD only because it was still in the middle of that format war. Uh, Mm -hmm. And and Continuum came out simultaneously, both DVD and Blu-ray, because in July the format war obviously was over. Uh, So now we're getting Blu-ray for Ark of Truth. Uh, It's in stores now in the U.S. Uh, Comes with a suggested sticker price of 35 bucks. And it's got all the same contents, all the same bonus features, same menus as the DVD release last year. Now, if you don't have Continuum on Blu-ray yet, and you're looking at getting this one, also remember that they're doing a two-pack release of both Arc of Truth and Continuum as a double feature. Uh, and that one is coming out on March 3rd, so not too much longer to wait. Mm-hmm. If you want to mm-hmm. save a little money. I'd love to see Arc of Truth in high def. This was, you know, after the series, this was the first big kind of cinematic look for a Stargate show. Yeah, it really broke a lot of barriers. Gateworld Features. And last week we gave you a special preview of our interview with Ben Browder. David and uh, Gateworld Forum's Tammy Farrar headed out to Los Angeles to talk with Ben face-to-face. And this video interview is now up on the site. I think it's a good piece. I'm very proud of it. Ben was definitely on. There's a lot of laughter in it. He he pulled a lot of jokes, and he's just a good guy. Really good guy. So we've also had a lot of people ask if uh, we could do our video interviews also as audio only. So you can go on the site and watch the video, or now you can also download the audio version of this interview, which we hope to add soon to the GateWorld Interviews podcast on iTunes. And later this week, expect to see our first interview with director Andy Makita. He's been with the franchise since Children of the Gods. He is a wealth of Stargate knowledge and just a joy to talk with this guy. We talked with Mm -hmm. him about Enemy at the Gate, um, the news that he is now directing the first Atlantis movie, and we spent a lot of time talking about heroes. It was just a joy. You directed Enemy at the Gate which was the final episode of Atlantis. And, and generally, yep. those kinds of episodes went to Martin Wood, with notable yes. exceptions like New Order and Heroes. Um, and Martin and Rob got to direct the first uh, SG-1 movies. But now you're yes. finally getting to direct one. Now, was it at all frustrating as an artist that your colleagues always seem to be getting the cool stuff? You know what? Not at all. It honestly, honestly wasn't. I mean, the uh, uh, I was always super excited to get the uh, get the episodes that I was lucky enough to get and mm-hmm. uh, you know Martin is a is a fantastic director Robert's a fantastic director those guys you know deserve to uh, to do the episodes that they're doing and uh, and there was never for a moment any uh, you know any jealousies or bitterness or anything mm-hmm. I mean hey we're we're a huge family I mean you know we're we're all friends socially as well so there's never there honestly and uh, you know 
100% honesty. There's never been any sort of animosities or jealousies at all. That's and, great. Uh, Martin was just here the other night. We had a little Christmas get-together, and oh, Martin cool. was here, and Peter was here, and their families, and uh, Damien Kindler was over. There was a bunch of people over at the house. I mean, we're, we're still, you know, very much friends socially, not just uh, not just at work. So, uh, no, I've always been real happy with uh, with the opportunities that I've had on the show doing mid-season two-parters and uh, you know season openers and such. So I've 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 absolutely nothing to complain about. I have to just put you on hold just for two okay, seconds, David. Cool. My, my son has just come in uh, with a note. Can I play on the computer? Yes or no. P.S. It's okay with mom. Yes, it's fine. Sandy. <laughs> the, the main discussion. Our main discussion topic this week is, of course, the final episode of Stargate Atlantis, Enemy at the Gate. This was a huge episode. They they did major advancement for the series. Uh, there was a lot going on. There was a lot of action, some character moments. This is this is it. This is the culmination. Episode one hundred. Mm-hmm. What are your initial impressions? I think more than any other episode, it is important to know how much Enemy at the Gate had writing on it. This episode is wearing three hats. It is the 100th episode of the series. Mm. It is the series finale, not to mention the season finale. It had a lot to do. It had a lot to prove. And there is no way in hell that everyone is going to be completely satisfied with this episode i certainly was it but was it good i have to say it was good yeah i really enjoyed the episode but um it's it's not perfect in my view i've kind of gone back and forth in my head over what star rating to give this on gate world Mm -hmm. is this a four star episode is this three and a half is it three Mm -hmm. maybe i've my mind is kind of really waffled a lot broader than it usually does after an episode let me offer an anecdote on advancing the plot. One of the things about dramatic television is it threads things of lo- along and, in order to create a mosaic of a story. And then hopefully by the end of it, everything comes to its natural conclusion. Dr. Carson Beckett being put on ice is one. Mm-hmm. The race to find a ZPM to power Atlantis is another. Mm-hmm. For Dr. Carson Beckett earlier this year, I was hoping that they would kind of spend some time trying to f- fix uh, his his genetic abnormality because Michael created uh, created him. But in the second or third episode of the season, I believe The Seed, Jennifer Keller spends some time in the lab and whoop, she, she solves Carson Beckett's problem and then Carson is completely fine. Even though we spent a significant part of uh, one of the episodes in season uh, four playing the point that he may not come, ever come out of that icebox again. Right. Now, the, the ZPMs, Atlantis has always been without ZPMs, dwindling power supply. We have the, the ancient city is never at full power. And at the last minute, Todd pulls two ZPMs out of his hat. Now Atlantis is fully powered again. So it's kind of like, what the hell? ZPMs is, is really one of the main points that I wanted to talk about because exactly as you said, it seems like with Atlantis, our, our major plot development is sort of by fits and starts. It's not necessarily really gradual over the course of the five years, but ZPMs were what we have been needing since we got to the city in Rising. Obviously, season one was hugely about just trying to find these little things to power the city so that we can do things like dial Earth or raise the shield. You know, now it's sort of, we've almost gotten to the point where, because we have ships that go back and forth to Earth, 
we have one ZPM and we have Naquita generators sufficient enough that we can cloak the city if we have to. We can raise the shield if we have to. We've almost forgotten about ZPMs, I think, by the end of Season 5, and then it's just suddenly out of almost thin air. The city is now fully powered. That dang shield makes the city completely invincible when it's charged. So I can understand them not wanting to have all three ZPMs in place. Yeah, and I also recognize that that there was a a very great legitimate part in the the show's mythology in the unfolding of this story where it makes this possible. It's it's not really a a ZPM ex machina. It's it's we saw Todd send his guys to steal these things in Spoils mm-hmm. of War last year. And we knew mm-hmm. he had a bunch of them. And so it doesn't surprise us really that they weren't all destroyed in that episode, but he's he's not kept all his eggs in one basket, but kind of spread them out a little bit. Mm-hmm. So the presence of those ZPMs, I think, goes a long way in explaining a lot in this episode. Some of the mm-hmm. comments that I've read have, have been concerned about the fact that, you know, Atlantis has been kind of stuck, kind of underpowered for so long, and then we've had trouble communicating with Earth and traveling back and forth between Atlantis and Earth, and then all of a sudden, we can just say, fire up the star drive, let's go to Earth, and yeah. go to Earth and get in this huge battle. It's it's really, ZPMs make all the difference in the Stargate universe. Right, or if we can't get there in time, then we invent a new means of travel. Yeah, we'll talk about that. But um, it, it, I just want to say it does make sense when you put two ZPMs in there and the city of Atlantis is fully powered. Uh, it makes sense that now we can fly it around and do mm-hmm. pretty much whatever we want. That just came mm-hmm. out in this episode really, really quickly. It happened mm-hmm. really quickly. The dialogue was explained really quickly. Rodney has a line in, in the teaser, I think, that, that says basically inefficient power generation is the Achilles heel of Wraith technology. It's it's why we have such a big technological advantage over them. It's the sheer fact that, that this Wraith underling, who I guess never got a name, uh, I was hoping it was going to be the same Wraith from Vegas, but in our reality, because he figured out how to interface a ZPM with a hive ship, apparently overcomes all the the technological inferiority of Wraith technology. So now suddenly Wraith hive ships can travel much more efficiently through hyperspace. We remember mm-hmm. back in episodes like Allies and No Man's Land, the season two finale, season three premiere of Atlantis, mm-hmm. um, there was a hive ship headed for Earth, uh, but one of their problems was their hyperdrive technology was so much less efficient. Yeah, it was one of the big things in season one, you know, where where they had the hive ships heading for Atlantis had to make so many pit stops. Mm-hmm. So the ZPM apparently covers over a multitude of, of inefficiencies in Wraith technology. Well, it's one of those God from Machine things. Yeah, somewhat of a, of a story conceit that we can get the hive ship to Earth so quickly. Because Earth is the centerpiece. This is the Wraith are attacking Earth. This is what we've been afraid of for five years, what we've been trying to stop for five years. And now mm-hmm. it's happening. And that battle over Earth... I think is awesome for for a series conclusion. Uh, but we've got to get the hive ship there first and, and overcome all these obstacles that we've created into the mythology. And then we've got to get Atlantis there really, really quickly. It doesn't take Atlantis two weeks or three weeks like the Daedalus to get there. Uh, we've got to come up with a, with a way for that to happen so that we can have this climactic battle and not have this passage of time that says, well, they're headed for Atlantis, and now three weeks later, here's the battle. So lots of ships in this episode, lots of Earth ships, 
We have a, a couple of new ones. The Sun Tzu, which I suppose is is a bone for Shen Yi to chew on for a while, since she can't have Stargate Command. Yeah, very possibly a uh, a Chinese Douglas class ship, like the Korolev was for the Russians. Yeah, they're not exactly ready to give the Russians another ship yet after they blew the first one up after one mission. Yeah. So we've got this uh, ZPM-powered Super Hive, uh, which isn't just souped up by ancient technology. It's They actually grew the ship to be larger and stronger and have a thicker mm-hmm. hole. Had an inter- interesting outer shell, yeah. So then uh, our strategy is to send the Apollo, which is commanded by Abraham Ellis, Michael Beach's character, uh, and the Sun Tzu to intercept the ship when it makes one of its pit stops. So apparently it's they can't overcome Wraith limitations in, in hyperspace travel so much that they, they don't have to make pit stops anymore. So mm-hmm. we send two of our ships to catch them at a pit stop, probably the void between galaxies, and they get their butts handed to them. Yeah, but we didn't lose anybody, I don't think. No, it sounds like both of those ships are still going to be around. And the Odyssey? Where's the Odyssey? On a secret mission that even Caldwell is not supposed to know about, if I remember the dialogue correctly. Mm-hmm. Stargate Universe! How much do you want to bet? I don't know. Maybe we should lay odds now if that's going to get a mention. Because it wouldn't surprise me in the least. And then uh, there's a new ship, just like in the alternate timeline in uh, The Last Man a year ago. Yes, it's the Phoenix is right on schedule. Sam Carter, yeah, gets gets the command of ship of her own. But uh, the Sun Tzu came out of nowhere. So it usually, it seems like they're kicking out one new one a year. Then that Nakwada mine from Enemy Mine is is really doing its part. Those Unas are are really lifting some Nakwada. Yeah, cranking it <laughs> out. But it's not the Phoenix. It's it's the Hammond, or depending on how you catch the, the dialogue, Hammond. the General Hammond. The the fact that they mentioned him in the finale, that was something that I was really hoping that they would do before Atlantis ended. That they would they would make mention of of General Hammond mm-hmm. passing because obviously he's not going to come back. So that was really a great tip of the hat and a very appropriate one to Don S. Davis, so I really applaud them for doing that. One of the things that I like most about this episode is the fact that we kind of get our butts handed to us because we have not really been under serious threat, especially not from the Wraith, for a long time. At least since the Ori were defeated, you've got the ancient weapons platform on Earth, which has been there since Lost City. And now we have a, a fleet of, of what, going on a half a dozen Daedalus-class vessels. Yeah, uh, six, which, five or six. as of two years ago, are now outfitted completely with Asgard weaponry and shields. Uh, and we saw, I mean, I think we talked about probably in our first podcast when we watched Search and Rescue this season, how easy it is for one of our ships to destroy a Wraith Hive ship. In that mm-hmm. episode, all we really were concerned with was making sure we got our people off his ship off mm-hmm. of Michael's hive ship, and then and then Caldwell could give the command to make that ship go away. So now, with this hive ship and, and the destruction of the weapons platform on Earth, I'm actually really happy that, that we have some enemies that are a threat again. Um, yeah, and that we've been taken down a couple of notches. You know, I'm really exactly. pleased about that. You know, well, not some... being a resident of this planet in the television show, I'm very happy. <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm happy that Earth has been humbled a little bit and that um that that ancient weapons platform has been destroyed, frankly. I'm glad because I think it opens up a bit more vulnerability. The Wraith have have never been that serious of a threat to Earth. Uh, in part because they were just yeah. so far away, they didn't have any way to get there and they didn't know where it was. Um yeah. but that was a running tension from the end of Rising when we woke up the Wraith because they mm-hmm. found out that Earth existed. 
Uh, that's mm-hmm. been sort of a, a tension in the background of the Atlanta story for five years, and it was it was a really nice choice to have that be the last story, a Wraith attack on Earth. The only thing I regret is the fact that that ship has been destroyed, and apparently nobody else has that technology. So now, yeah. presumably, the Wraith are going to, to go back to being the, the little wussies that they are, unless... You know, Todd can pull something out of his sleeve and and acquire that technology that he had his minion working on. And you're uh, assuming Shepard didn't blow him away. I am assuming that. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Todd. I hope that he's going to be back in the movie, alive and well. I hope that he's going to be cunning and get away. And I hope that he's going to go back and be able to implement this technology so that the Wraith mm-hmm. continue to be a bigger threat than they were. He uh, has always been definitely one of my favorites, and I was surprised to see him in Vegas. So yeah. having him back for the finale was good. You just don't throw away a bad guy like that. I mean, come on, don't tease us. You you don't do that. <laughs> yeah, after infection last month, we weren't sure if we were going to see him again. He was not looking too hot when he when uh-huh. he left through the gate. Didn't you think that that was the end of him for the year? At least our version of him? Yeah, I didn't know that he was going to be in Vegas or in Enemy at the Gate. I mm-hmm. thought it might be the movie before we found out that he survived. So I don't see any reason why Shepard would have blown him away at the end. He basically threatened to kill him if if he found out that that Todd was playing us, and Todd wasn't wasn't really playing us. Well, let's say, for instance, that Shepard did kill him. How cold-blooded do you want your hero to be? <laughs> the yeah. guy's defenseless, standing there. Come on. Yeah, It's you know, one thing when Polya has a gun, and he's pulling it to shoot Shepard, and Shepard's al- already promised the next time I see you and you interfere with me again, I'm going to kill you. Yeah, or when Taylor kicks Michael's fingers off yeah, the top exactly. of the building in the prodigal. So I think Todd's alive and well. I expect to see him in full Earth custody when the movie starts. Now, let me ask you quickly, what did you think of this battle strategy? We sent two of our ships to try and intercept the Wraith. Um, The Odyssey's gone. We have the the weapons platform, so we call Shepard back to Earth to run the weapons platform, shoot some drones at the Hive ship once it gets here. Um, And then Atlantis is kind of off doing its thing. I don't think that Earth really expected Atlantis to be able to make it there in time for the battle, if, yeah. it, if they knew that it was coming at all. So, as far as a strategy for defending the planet goes, does this make sense, or do we deserve to have our, our precious weapons platform wiped out? I don't know if we had that many options. We sent the Sun Tzu and the Apollo out. I probably, personally, would have left them around Earth to at least protect the planet, because once Earth is gone, that's it. You know, so sending the Apollo and the Sun Tzu to intercept them, where if they get their butts kicked, they're not going to be able to come back and help, I'm not sure was the best idea. Yeah, uh, I understand the, the the desire to do the preemptive strike because we think that, that they're still trying to get their ship up, up to full capacity with these ZPM modifications. We think it's probably going to be by the time they get to Earth that they're actually done. Uh, but yeah, we're we're ultimately relying on that that drone chair to defend Earth and nothing else. Got to think about the fact that Earth also has a lot of allies in the Milky Way galaxy. Wonder how much it would have taken to get some some Jaffa Hataks there to defend the planet. But that's a minor quibble. You want to talk about this wormhole drive? Yeah, didn't that come out of left field? And what implications does that mean on? future travel, you know, it's like introducing Superman's ability to travel back in time you know, whenever there's a problem, all Superman has to do is travel around the world a few times and fix it. Of all the elements of this episode that you could critique this is the biggest 
in my view, this was the biggest sort of completely out of left field deus ex machina moment where Raddick says Rodney's been working on this for years and years, and we've, by the way, never bothered to tell the audience. Um, but it can it can get us to Earth in seconds. That's a a bit of a stretch, and I can I can believe that the ancients were were working on some alternate form of hyperdrive technology that uses wormholes like the Stargates do. Okay, that works. Um, but it really required a little bit of setup, and it was really a little bit too convenient. And then the fact that they didn't show it to us mm-hmm. really says mm-hmm. we need to get Atlantis here now to be a part of the final battle instead of three weeks later. So we need to come up with a line of dialogue. It's, this is the closest yeah. that, that Stargate has ever come to Technobabble, where we need to come up yeah. with a line of dialogue in order to accomplish what we want to do. They go to such great effort to to make all this plausible. Such great effort. And then pull something out of a hat. It's like, okay, you expect us to accept this after a couple of sentences? It's it's really, really hard for me to do that. Yeah, fortunately they don't do it all that often, uh, but I think uh-huh. this this is the sort of example where it really shows when you do an arc like like we did at mm-hmm. the first half of Season 4 uh, with the, the Replicator Wraith War. When you do an arc and you can kind of plan for these things a little bit ahead of time and you can drop a line of dialogue a few episodes before, then it, it really helps the story to feel more natural. Mm-hmm. And like an arc. You raise an interesting point here that I didn't even consider. Why send a team through to the ship instead of a nuke? My first thought, as soon as we we realized that Atlantis had dialed up the Stargate and connected to the hive ship uh, near Earth... Send a bomb through. ...was send a bomb. I mean, it's, that's Jack's great line from There But For The Grace Of God. Great, we'll send yeah, a bomb. Yeah, send a bomb through. And they didn't. They didn't. And Ronan died. And Ronan died. I'm not sure about the strategy. I'm not sure if, uh, you know, assuming we can confirm first that they don't have an iris or anything protecting the Stargate. Yeah, that's what I was expecting. So that you, you could know, actually they, get a bomb through. One of the big things about SG-1 was always, you know, using the garage door opener or, you know, Anubis's shields in Season 7 that was was introduced that protected the Stargates were so tally-ho in Pegasus Galaxy about not checking the other side of the wormhole. I don't even think we use MALPs anymore. We just go through every time and expect that the other side is going to be okay. Yeah, supposedly we do We do send MALPs from Atlantis. Uh, we don't see them a lot, and they're not really part of the story very much. As we've talked about, we don't see the Stargate very often. But yeah, I, I might have liked a little bit of explanation as to why we felt that it was going to be more expedient to send a team through to sabotage the ship instead of mm-hmm. sending a nuke, which obviously Shepard proved was capable of completely destroying it from the inside. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe Atlantis didn't have any nukes. Well, I'm thinking about it. I loved the great nod about when we got the uh, ZPMs from Todd, checking them to make sure that they weren't tampered with, like mm-hmm. like the one was in Zero Hour. We got him. He actually came through for us. Maybe he's turning over a new leaf. Get those down to Zelenka immediately. Yes, sir. Or maybe they're going to blow up when you plug them in. Have Dr. McKay check them first. Right. All right, I'm head to the chair. Actually, Colonel, you won't be flying the city for us. In fact, you won't be coming with us at all. What are you talking about? You have a half an hour to pack, and then you'll be gating back to Earth. 
Even with the ZPMs, there's still a good chance we won't get there in time. And Earth's only other line of defense is the ancient weapons platform. General O'Neill wants you in the chair. Good luck. Yeah, you too. That was great. You know, they, they recognized that little thread from the other show. So yeah. I, I felt that that was a nice little payoff because that's, that's what they needed to do. Yeah, that's, that's what we think about. You know, we think about things like send a bomb. We think about things like make sure there's no errors. So what about Ronan? You know, when, I, when he went down, I kind of hoped that he wasn't going to get up because I really thought that that would have made this episode very, very touching. And um, sudden, yes, that, that he's just suddenly gone and he gets knifed in the back. Like, come on. But had he died, you know, I was thinking, well, Jason wanted this, this character to go to a dark place. So maybe this is it. Yeah, and Jason had also said in, in the last year or so that he was maybe going to do a season six and then be done. Yeah. And then, and then leave the show. So it was yeah. entirely plausible that they were writing Ronan out in the last episode. And then not. And then not. It's not just that they brought him back, it's that they brought him back. I timed it the second time I watched it. it just over two minutes after he died that they brought him back. I thought that Jason's pose, that last shot after he'd been killed, where he's just twisted back and his eyes are still open and his eyes are rolled up in his head, that was cool. I, I was just thinking Jason must have had a lot of fun posing for that. <laughs> This death scene and, and actually the whole mission connecting the gate to the hive ship and sending our guys through reminded me a lot of Serpent's Lair mm-hmm. and uh, yes. and uh, Within the Serpent's Grasp, which is the season yes. finale of season one of SG-1 and then the season two premiere when SG-1 goes through to Apophis's mothership that's attacking Earth. Uh, a lot of similarities and, and Daniel dies in that one. Mm-hmm. He... Or he comes pretty close to dying. He's left for dead uh, because oh, he, gets, he uses the sarcophagus to get gets, himself back. Yeah, again. he gets shot with a with a staff blast and and mm-hmm. tells Jack to leave him, and then he crawls his way to the sarcophagus. Um, so by the time SG One has saved the planet and gotten back to Stargate Command, they think that Daniel's dead until he steps out and and shows that he's he's okay. Um, that that death. And resurrection was a lot better than than Ronan's death and resurrection because, I mean, that was a very emotional moment for the character, both in his death, quote unquote death, and in his his coming back and his being reunited with Jack at the end of that episode. Uh, instead, this was there's a little bit of a moment when when Taylor tells Shepard that Ronan didn't make it, and there's there's a little bit of a moment uh, for Shepard to to act on that. But again, it's two minutes later. We get back to Ronan's dead body, and it's, oh, you're feeling better. Okay, up, let's go. When he fell and was dead, there was a twinge in the pit of my gut that I don't ever get for Atlantis. Because I'm spoiled early on, even though I don't want to be, mm-hmm. by like Carson Beckett's death or Janet Frazier's death. We all knew it was coming. Mm-hmm. And then this one comes out of left field, and he dies and goes down. I get that twist in my gut that I never get for Atlantis. And then two minutes later, when he's resurrected, it's gone. How amazing would that have been for the series finale? And it, it obviously would have caused a, a big uprising. And, yeah, and uprising from, from Ronan fans aside, it, it would have been amazing. It would have been a lot for us to talk about. I mean, it would have been a major move. It would have been, even for the last episode of the show, 
you're yeah. not producing weekly episodes anymore, it still would have been bold. It would have been it would have been yes. risky. Even though I was really glad that they did it, that I thought that it was a good decision, um, the execution I thought really left a lot to be desired. Even just in in the amount of time that we thought he was dead. I mean, even if you can extend that somehow to ten or fifteen or twenty minutes, you know, like Daniel bring him back at the end of the episode, or yeah, or show us the audience that he's still alive and the team doesn't know. What do you think about the visual effects uh, for the final battle? Two great big ships shooting at each other. I wasn't really blown away, and I'm not sure why. It seemed like the visual effects in this episode, for the most part, were sort of a lot of what we've seen before. I mean, it was on a bigger scale. We haven't seen Atlantis in mid-air combat. Um, Mm -hmm. I really like the overhead shot where we saw the the perspective of Atlantis and how tiny it looked next to the ship. One of my bigger beefs about the visual effects shot, I go from one beef to another. I apologize, audience, but but this is one of the things that keys on that I key on. It's called Stargate Atlantis. So Atlantis is obviously, theoretically, a very important part of the show. So why does every visual effects house have their own Atlantis? It was developed by Rainmaker. Uh, It was a snowflake consisting of six piers. Mm -hmm. And then somewhere around season three reissued a new version of Atlantis that was six piers, obviously, but two of the piers, I should say four piers, were attached. So two of them were, were visibly attached. And then we get this great overhead shot in this episode, and all six piers are unattached again. It's like every visual effects house seems to have its own version of Atlantis. I don't understand why there's always different versions of Atlantis, why they can't keep that one model, as big as it is, looking consistent. Mm. To the naked eye, there are some big overall changes in that model from episode to episode. I think you were the one who said this to me earlier this week, was that Atlantis was originally supposed to be a character in the show, and here Atlantis is up front and center. This city is a character yeah. in this episode. Yeah. Well, it's a part of the episode, certainly. You know, and it, it's not just about it losing power all the time and, and McKay trying to hold it together. Carter's very clear, you know, and, and they give the city a moment. Atlantis is coming home. Mm-hmm. That was a great moment. Yeah, I thought Sam was good in this episode, and I, I thought that Colin Cunningham back as Major Davis... Who poor fella hasn't been promoted in over ten years? <laughs> Thirteen years! Come on! Still, I mean that his performance is always just straight up rock solid. That that character is you know exactly who that character is, and he even you know gets a little bit of of snarky moments. Yeah. Uh, about the the IOA evacuating. Yes. What did you think of Amanda's wig? Uh, I thought it looked great. It didn't bother me in the least. I thought it looked really completely. Really, natural. I couldn't get I couldn't get over it. Every time I looked at it, I said wig. <laughs> I would have much rather seen her dark hair. I thought she looked great, and I've been watching Sanctuary uh, off and on this season. I haven't seen the whole season yet, um, but I thought that that coming back in in uh, that blue SGC uniform with with the blonde wig, I think she really looked terrific. So the other major plot point to talk about is uh, Atlantis at the end of the series is now moved to Earth. It's come full circle when Rising started five years ago. Atlantis mm-hmm. was on Earth 
and left. Yeah, the very first scene, she left. And the ancients took it to the Pegasus Galaxy, so now it's back on Earth and parked in San Francisco Bay, apparently. Yeah, no one seems to notice a bowl cut out <laughs> of the ocean where there's water being displaced by some unknown force. Yeah, Carson's landing was apparently gentle enough that he didn't create any waves over the city of San Francisco. No tsunamis generated. Well, you, did you notice that the monitor had it had Atlantis landing north of Hawaii? I need to go back and, and pause that map scene because I couldn't recognize continents on that map. It had Atlantis landing near Hawaii uh, on a very, very small map, granted. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe the apparently, computer projection was just off? I That may have been it. Mm-hmm. And would Manhattan fit there? Near Alcatraz? I don't know the the geography of San Francisco well enough. Even though the Navy's quarantined the area, that I thought was one of the really cool touches. You could see cars driving across the, the Golden Gate Bridge. I'd love to hear from any of our listeners who might be in the California area if they, uh, if they think that the, the city fits out there and if, if uh, it could really land without being noticed. Well, I, I really got to wonder now is uh, once the Atlantis movie comes, if the program is going to be forced to go public. Because we've had battles over Earth before. We've had Anubis's attack in Antarctica. Um, we have sh- six ships now fully staffed with crew. No one is talking. Come on. Well, not just the fact that, you know, we've got people in the military who are, are sworn to secrecy, but the fact that, I mean, now you've got a, a fleet of darts engaged in a dogfight in high Earth atmosphere. You've got two of them crash landing into the United States. Um, you know, you see, you see at one point Major Davis's head just go into his hands because I think he's just thinking, how are we possibly going to continue to cover this up? Is the program going to mm-hmm. be forced to go out into the public now? Mm-hmm. Is that is that maybe close? Are they setting that up, I wonder, for, for the yeah. next movie? Brad said to us, remember, that he wanted to save that for a feature. Mm. So, like a feature film, like cinema. So I doubt that it'll be one of these DVDs, um, but it's got to be sooner or later. That story, getting it out to the public, has to be told at some point now. It yeah. has to be. You know, otherwise it's not believable. Yeah. And one of the things that that spooked me a little bit is that we've seen a reality where the Stargate program was revealed to the public in The Road Not Taken, and there was yeah, mass right. chaos and mass hysteria. Hmm. So it's going to be interesting to see how they play it whenever they do. The more that we do in Earth's atmosphere, I think the greater the suspension of disbelief that that they can cover it up has to be. I mean, there's only you can only call it a, a meteor so many times. And I was wonder, I was thinking, were were they really going to land Atlantis near San Francisco and let it be seen? Because if you reveal Atlantis and and reveal that myth to the public being solved, you don't necessarily have to reveal the Stargates. Yeah, you know, I thought about that actually. I thought just before Woolsey gave that that line of dialogue that they put the cloak up just before they entered visual range. I thought maybe that, it was really there. That this was it that they were revealing Atlantis. Uh but they were not yeah. going to reveal the Stargate program. What's so bad about about letting humanity know about that? Yeah. What what are they hiding it from? When every wealthy person with an ounce of power who has the ability to change things for the worse already knows, (laughs) they're hiding it from you and they're hiding it from me. 
Well, we've got a movie coming up that's going to pick up here. And uh, Joe Malazzi said this week on his blog that, that these are some of the issues that, that we're going to have to deal with when the movie gets here. Is Atlantis is here on Earth now. Is it going to stay? Are we going to abandon the Pegasus galaxy to the Wraith? What about Ronan and Taylor? And now that Atlantis is here, I would think that the IOA would probably want to keep it around. They're, they may not be anxious to let them just fire up the star drive and head back because yeah the the drone chair is gone earth doesn't have any immediate defense from attack other than our ships all five of them yeah overall enemy at the gate is this uh we said it's a good episode but is this a fitting finale for the series i think enemy at the gate is a fine finale like i told andy makita i am going to give this episode and paul moly a great deal of credit because it was a lot to own up to Mm-hmm. And it could not be perfect. It was fun. It was compelling. It was interesting. It was exciting. It had a great deal of, of special effects. It had a little bit of character development. Uh, some supporting cast members like Amelia Banks that uh, I didn't even recognize. I thought she looked so much like Rachel it was scary. Yeah, I got an uh, email asking me who that girl was at the end. She got to shine a little bit, which I thought was very nice, which was a nice nod. A uh, little little chemistry between her and Ronan, you know, so that's a great cap to that romantic arc that's been going on for over a year now. Had I wanted it to be focused on the evil Asgard, 100% absolutely yes. Kiss the Wraith goodbye. I, I don't care for the Wraith. Mm. Uh, but they did what they could with it, and it was pretty good. And so, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it an 8 out of 10. Yeah, you're right that this episode had to wear a lot of hats, and it had to accomplish a lot in 44 minutes. Um, I think it... I wanted it to be originally about the evil Asgard, uh, but when you think about it as a series finale, I think it's got to be about the Wraith. The Wraith are our bad guys, and they've been mm. the main bad guys. As as weak as they've been made over the last few years, and then they, they sort of had a resurgence last year, I think. You've got to do the Wraith, I think, for the last episode. And it, it's really appropriate that it's a Wraith attack on Earth. For the Atlantis mythology, which didn't get to be as rich and as, as drawn out as 10 years of SG-1. So as a finale for the show, I'm very satisfied with it. Actually, I like it more as a series finale than I do as a standalone episode, which I think is kind of backwards from what I've seen a lot of people saying. Uh, as an episode, I think that it was too rushed. I would have to agree with you. If this had been a two-parter, either as a, as a two-part series finale or if, if we'd gotten our renewal and this had been a season finale and then the season six premiere, as a two-parter, I think this could have been Atlantis's lost city. There was not a whole lot of emotion from the team. Again, Ronan's death gave the opportunity for a little bit of that, but it didn't last long. Well, frankly, I think there's never been a great deal of emotion from the team. Compared to SG-1. There, there hasn't, yeah. We're going to do a couple of Atlantis podcasts here uh, in the next couple of weeks to talk about the show overall. And that's definitely something that I know we both want to talk about. Uh, but this mm-hmm. balcony scene at the end of the episode, it almost felt awkward to me. There's a little bit of a of a snuggly moment to cap off the, the McKay-Keller relationship. Uh, but other than that, it almost felt like the characters were awkward with each other. Like nobody really had anything to say. And there are fans out there who are listening to us and say, you guys are so completely wrong. But I guarantee you, most of them haven't been watching SG-1 for 12 years. <laughs> yeah, some of them have. But yeah, good story. Did some, some really interesting things that I liked. I loved the battle over Earth. I loved seeing the Wraith uh, dart 
dogfight in Earth atmosphere. If this was just uh, just a standalone episode, I, I'd probably get it an 8 out of 10. But as a series finale, I think I'm actually going to give it a 9 out of 10. Well, that's what we thought of Enemy at the Gate. We asked you to write in and call in and tell us what you thought of the series finale of Stargate Atlantis. Mac Jackson writes, Wow. The last episode was so good. Everything from the big action and intensity we used to see on the first eight seasons of SG-1 to the little character moments like the mention of General Hammond. I also liked that Jack was mentioned, recommending Shepard for the chair, since he would have first dibs. My only problem was that Carter, when hearing that the gate couldn't open, didn't budge to fix it, being the head gate expert. Overall, I adored this episode and wished the season, as well as the series, had more episodes like it. Luisco says, Enemy at the Gate was terrific. It really felt like classic Stargate. We got to see the team together, something missing in several Atlantis episodes this season, and they went from one problem to another, which is just typical Stargate. The plot was terrific, and a clever way to give Vegas more than just a filler episode status. The only thing I felt was missing from this episode was nice character moments, but considering this is an action show, I can't really complain. Quaid 1 says, what a massive episode. I had to watch Enemy at the Gate twice before I could comprehend everything that was going on. Easily the best Atlantis episode ever. That could have easily been the movie, jam-packed into 40 minutes. I can't wait for the movie. Where are they going to go with the ending they are left with now? And we have a couple of voicemails on Enemy at the Gate and uh, another one on the casting of Robert Carlyle for Stargate Universe. Let's listen to those. This is Dave from Montreal. I had really high expectations for the finale and sadly just didn't do it for me. Uh, you know, the Wraith have been culling Pegasus Galaxy for, what, thousands of years now? This is the first time they find themselves at ZPM? Really? And, and, and the whole ending with, you know, them superseding the gate is cool and all. But, you know, that being said, with every wormhole being open to Earth going to them, you'd think they'd guard that gate room with more than a, uh, four wraiths. Oh, how implausible was that? I was so disappointed. Hi, my name is Jeremy from Hillsboro, Oregon. I thought the episode was incredible overall. It was great. I loved it. The special effects were spectacular. Some of the best of the series. Kind of surprised that Atlantis with three CPMs, even though they used the power-consuming wormhole drive, could not beat a race hive ship that has an unknown number of ZPMs, probably just one or two. And I'm also wondering what the super secret mission the Odyssey's on. Maybe it's the next movie, who knows? Hey, this is Eric from uh, Fairbanks, Alaska, where it's been about 45 below for the last couple of weeks. Um, answering the uh, question of the week about Robert Carlyle, um, I've loved him ever since uh, Formula 51 with. Uh, Sam Jackson. Great movie. He was hilarious, and uh, I'm excited about it. Thanks to everyone for calling in and writing in this week. Here's this week's listener question for next week's show. Tell us which episode from the fifth and final season of Atlantis was your favorite, and which episode was your least favorite, and why. Do include both. So next week for our January 20th show, we'll do our Atlantis Season 5 recap, talking about all 20 episodes and uh, some of our favorites and, and not-so-favorites. And then our January 27th show is a, a special show. We're going to bring Tammy Farrar back, and Tammy and David and I are going to talk about 
Atlantis as a whole over the course of the five years. Do some do some critical analysis, some some deconstruction of what the show has done, uh, and where we've been satisfied with it, and where we think uh, it it could have been a better show. And then for our February third show, we're gonna have a very special show that you, our listener, are in charge of. Uh, we want to hear your questions. If you've got any questions for me and David, if you want to hear us talk about something specific, throw anything at us, and we'll grab it and we'll pitch it back to you. So that'll be a more of a, a light, informal show. I hope we'll have a bit of fun. I hope that we get some good voicemails and uh, posts on the forum about that. Uh, we've got a, f- a couple more weeks to generate those, but uh, this is this is your show. So give us a call on the podcast hotline or post on the forum sometime between now and the end of the month, January 30th, 31st, and uh, let us know what you want to hear us talk about in that episode. The number for the GateWorld podcast hotline is area code 616-712-1647. You can call and leave your answer to this week's listener question or give us a, a question for our February 3rd show. You can also post over on the podcast feedback thread at GateWorld Forum. Thanks once again for joining us for the podcast this week. In this episode, David and I talked about the final episode of Stargate Atlantis, Enemy at the Gate. We also gave you a preview of our upcoming interview with Andy Makita, which is on the site later this week. And for links to everything we talked about today, head to GateWorld.net and look for the episode number 25 show notes. From GateWorld, this is Darren Sumner. And David Reed. And David Reed. And you've been listening to the Gate World Podcast. <laughs> 25, baby. 